0: Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee and, and let's, let's get our, our fix. fix.
1: Today, addicts, we are talking about a necrophiliac loose in Michigan. And I am so freaking stoked. Because this is going to be our first deep dive into an individual case. Yeah,
0: I can't wait. Let's I, let's go. <laughs>
1: okay, so super quick though, I do want to mention that I think I have literally perfected my peppermint white mocha brevet. She has. And it is so. Oh, good! I can
0: confirm. Yes,
1: I made one for Kylie, <laughs> so and good. that's what we're drinking right now. So, if you want the recipe, you can head over to the website. It is on the coffee tab. Um, you can literally drink this hot or iced, and super affordable, super delicious, and it's like kind of a little bit sugar-free, like half sugar-free, half sugar, half not. <laughs> kind of good for you, kind of not. But it's still so. Good. <laughs> yes. So we, of course, want to continue to give a huge shout out to our fellow crime addicts who have liked and followed us. We seriously cannot thank you guys enough for your encouragement and excitement. And if you haven't already, please do not forget to like, follow, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on Twitter, Facebook, IG and YouTube, and TikTok, or at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. All right, Kai, let's get into this. All right. So
0: today, we are going to start out in 1999. From late 1999 into the early months of 2000, young women turned up dead at an alarming rate in and around Detroit. As investigators worked the case, they considered the very real threat of a serial killer. On August 15, 1999, Natasha Olenichok agreed to $100 for intercourse with a man. He drove her to her room at the day's inn. Once inside the room, he turned nervous and panicky. He paced a moment, then asked to use the bathroom. When he came out, he said, I gotta go. I don't feel right in here. He left, but a few minutes later, he knocked on the door. Natasha opened it. Slamming the door behind him, he pulled out a folding knife. As she backed towards the bed, she claims that he pushed her down on the floor. She wrestled for the knife, cutting her hands in the process. The man then picked her up and wrestled her to the bed, pressing his knees into her chest. I hate hookers, he hissed as he began choking her. She passed out. She came to several hours later on her knees, her forehead pressed into the bed, a bloody telephone cord wrapped around her neck. When the police arrived, they found one odd clue. Lying on the floor was a brown belt buckle with an insignia. On December 3rd, 1999, a woman identified as Monica Johnson of Detroit, Michigan was found unconscious and barely alive near Interstate 94. She was a 31-year-old prostitute and a mother of four. She died at Ford Hospital in Detroit before talking to authorities. There is not much information available about Ms. Johnson, but our prayers go out to those she has survived by. On January 2, 2000, the partially clothed body of a woman was found in the icy Rouge River, in Dearborn Heights, outside of Detroit, Michigan. Investigators ruled out suicide and believed she'd been tossed from a bridge. At the scene, the victim's hands were wrapped in plastic to preserve possible DNA evidence, and police spoke with the man who reported the body. The citizen that found the body was John Armstrong, and he told authorities he stumbled upon it when he fell ill while driving and stopped his car to vomit. After being interviewed by police, having his car searched and fibers collected, he was released. On January 3rd, an autopsy showed that the victim had been strangled. A rape kit was performed. Fingerprints revealed her identity as Wendy Jordan, who is 39. She'd been arrested previously for soliciting charges in the city of Detroit. Wendy Jordan's sister, Bonnie, insists over and over to anyone who will listen to her that her sister, Wendy, was not a prostitute. Bonnie's convinced that Wendy had put that part of her life behind her in the two years she had been off drugs. Wendy was working a good job as a manager of a gas station in the working-class Detroit suburb of Royal Oak and didn't need to sell her body on the cold streets of Detroit, Michigan anymore. She may have been that in the past when she was doing drugs, Bonnie admitted, but not when she died. Wendy was clean for two years, she added. The new millennium started on a tragic note for the Jordan family. They had last seen Wendy at about 9 p.m. on New Year's Day when she left them at home and said she was going out. Wendy never returned, and the family learned two days later that her body had turned up in the Rouge River. Clearly, Wendy Jordan had met with foul play. She had been strangled, and her lifeless body had been thrown from a bridge into the water. In a strange twist, police would learn too late that they had been closer than they ever would have thought to Jordan's killer, and if the red tape of bureaucracy had not slowed their investigation, authorities might have been able to apprehend a murderer before he had a chance to kill again. In late March 2000, Wilhelmina Drain, who was 42, and a car parts packer and retired hooker, was waiting for a bus on Michigan Avenue, but accepted a ride from a man late at night. During the drive, he pulled his Jeep over to the side of the road to get something out of his coat pocket, she says, but instead he reached for her throat. Quote, lucky for me, I had a scarf on, Drain says, so he couldn't get the best grip, end quote. Drain knocked the man's glasses from his face and scratched him, but he hung on tight. On the verge of blacking out, Drain says she sprayed the man in his eyes with a can of pepper spray concealed in her coat. Then she leaped from the car. She said, fucker, I ain't ready to go. I ain't the one. Then she ran away. She observed that the man had a tattoo of a tiger on his arm.
1: On April 10, 2000, in plain view from some train tracks in a railroad yard in Southwest Detroit was a woman's body. Then, another woman's body in the early stage of decomposition was found in a nearby culvert. A third victim, even more decomposed than the others, was discovered. All three victims had ligature markings around the neck. The official cause of death was determined to be strangulation. Each had posed in a sexually provocative way on their backs with their legs spread open. It was determined right away that the person committing these heinous crimes was the same offender. The fact that the bodies weren't hidden indicated that the offender potentially wanted law enforcement to find the bodies and even wants to be caught. There was a jacket that hid a prescription pill bottle with a man's name on it, but this turned out to be a dead end. The victim had placed the pill bottle in her pocket at some point. The woman, who each had previous arrests were identified through fingerprints as Robin Brown, 20 years old, Rose Marie Felt, 32, and Kelly Hood, 34. Rosemarie Felt was a vivacious blonde streetwalker from northeastern Detroit who struggled with crack addiction. When her body was located, her black tights were crotchless. After she had sex with the John in a Jeep vehicle, he strangled her and pitched her down the 20-foot slope, only to scuttle down after her and have sex with the body. Her body was in the deteriorating stages upon being discovered. Kelly Hood followed Felt and was murdered one week later. Hood went down to Detroit from Muskegon, a northern Michigan town that, despite its smaller size, seemed to have a lot of the same problems that plague the larger urban cities. Beneath its attractive appearance, Muskegon has more than its share of poverty. Kelly moved to the big city after meeting her future husband, who worked on the line at the Chrysler Auto Plant. They lived in a nice house in a working-class neighborhood in Detroit and settled down to raise their family. The three children came quickly in succession, each about a year apart. But when the children were two, three, and four, something changed in Kelly, and along with a friend, she became a user of crack cocaine and heroin and found herself constantly chasing the dragon. Soon, Kelly and her friend Linda were addicts, and when the kids were about six, seven, and eight, she left her husband and children for a life on the streets as a prostitute to support her habit. Hood's son was nine when his grandmother told him his mother was gone. In his words, the killer had no heart, and he had left my mother on a train track, discarded her like trash. An occupant of the train passing by first saw the body of Robin Brown. She was the first body found and the freshest because her body had not been discarded down the culvert like the others. When detectives arrived, she had been deceased for approximately 12 hours. Again, we don't know much about her, but our prayers go out to those she has survived by.
0: Three days after Kelly was killed, but prior to Robin being killed, there was another victim. Her name is Devin Maris. She's a black transsexual prostitute and had fought off an attacker by blasting him in the face with pepper spray. She told the police about this man and was able to describe the baby-faced predator wearing a work shirt that read Eric and his blue Jeep with, quote, the rear tire cover that had J-E-E-P written on it, she said. Another surviving victim encountered the same man on April 11, 2000. Her name was Avon Skinner, and her street name was Jasmine. She was working her usual spot on the north side of Michigan, just west of the Venus Strip Club. Only 36 hours before, she had hopped in a car, traded sex for $100, and seconds after, found a pair of meaty hands wrapped around her neck. The man was growling, quote, I hate prostitutes. Jasmine blacked out. Two hours later, she awoke on the grassy shoulder of the Etzel Ford Expressway. Her purse was gone, and her clothes were ripped. She had a four-inch gash along her hip. Though shaken, she hadn't bothered telling the cops, quote, even if bad shit happens to these women, they don't want to draw extra attention to themselves, said Brad Bullock. He's a police officer who worked the Michigan Avenue strip for five years. Once it's done, it's done, he says. There is one more victim we do need to mention here, although we're not entirely sure that she's actually a victim. This woman goes by the name of Nicole Young, and early in the the morning on April 10th of 2000, Nicole Young was hanging out between two car lots on Michigan Avenue. She's five, six, 18 to 20 years old. She'd be the youngest of the victims. When she was approached, she named her $60 price. And after they had sex in the backseat of the Jeep, the man grabbed Young's white pantyhose and strangled her. Nicole had been murdered and her body was left for dead. Nicole was a Chicago woman who was brought to Detroit by her boyfriend, forced to prostitute and then abandoned. What's odd here is she was a victim who was brutally murdered, however, and potentially fits the same descriptors as the others. However, he has never admitted to this murder, and this falls in a funky timeline of when the other victims were also being murdered and assaulted as well, so it's possible that she may not be a victim of his at all. And the reason that we bring it up here is because if you choose to go and do some research on this case, you will see her name pop up on a few sources. However, there is a documentary on the Oxygen TV show, Twisted Killers. It's season one, episode two, and it's titled The Dead Don't Say No. And in this entire documentary, Miss Young is never mentioned anywhere in this documentary. Yet somehow, he, her name does come up in research for this case, case.
1: So it's really weird. There's not there's not a lot of accurate information.
0: Correct. And we know I mean, we know her name, we know how she was killed, but he has never admitted to this. He was never convicted of this. Yes. So it gets to be a little bit iffy on whether she was actually one of his victims or not.
1: So this could have been like a copycat killer. This could have been a completely different person who was out
0: right in around the Michigan same...
1: in the same time yeah and he could still be out there she could yeah. still be out there we don't know but we did want to make this note because we found it interesting how her name was brought up however he was never actually convicted for her
0: and also in those resources where she did come up another victim Robin Brown was not mentioned so it was almost like they were getting it confused that. Robin Brown was not a victim and Nicole Young was, like, in her place as being a
1: victim. Yeah. But
0: according to court records, that's not valid.
1: Also, keep in mind, like, these women lived as prostitutes at the time, so these could also not be her actual name. This could have been a street name, um, but we just thought this was actually some pretty interesting information. However, if you were to investigate this yourself, you might see... Some of the things that we're seeing that it just doesn't add up.
0: Yeah, we didn't want to leave it unspoken about. But to our knowledge, Nicole Young is not a victim of the serial killer.
1: The search for the murderer intensifies and the sex crimes unit and the homicide unit joined the case. Detectives thought they caught a break when they found a coat near Hood's body with prescription pill bottles in a pocket. The name matched a man with a violent criminal past and an arrest record. The promising lead turned into a dead end. The individual passed a polygraph and he was cleared as a suspect. The FBI's behavioral analysis unit built a profile of the suspect, a white male who was 25 to 35 years old, who got sexual gratification from strangulation and necrophilia. After the discovery of the bodies and the descriptors received, The alleys of Michigan Avenue near Lanyo and Detroit's Southwest side were filled with undercover cops. This was an area of Detroit frequented by prostitutes whom he seemed to target in particular. The police spotted a Jeep with a distinctive tire cover as described and driven by a white man that fit the physical descriptors that matched that of the suspect. The man was identified as John Eric Armstrong. Does that name ring a bell? As he was loaded into the patrol car's back seat for questioning, Jasmine ran up to the vehicle and through the patrol's car window, she stated, That's the motherfucker that dumped me on the lawn and took my purse and choked me out. Armstrong didn't flinch. He'd been expecting this. He would later claim in an interrogation room at police headquarters that he wanted it to happen. He broke down, sobbing and begging for mercy, stating, I need help. He was arrested around 1230 a.m. Wednesday, April 12, 2000.
0: So who is John Eric Armstrong? He was born on November 23rd, 1973 in New Bern, North Carolina. He was raised in an abusive household with his father, John Ezra Armstrong, who was abusive towards him and his mother, Linda Armstrong. His father also sexually abused Armstrong when he was a child. There were indicators that his father was neglectful, such as in 1976, Armstrong broke his leg when he fell out of a window. He was only a toddler, and his father was supposed to be watching him. In 1978, his mother had another son, Michael. Unfortunately, Michael died at two months old from SIDS. Because of the grief caused by Michael's death, Armstrong attempted to commit suicide at the age of five by riding his bike into speeding traffic claiming he wanted to be with his baby brother. Four months after his brother Michael died, His father left the family in New Bern, North Carolina, to be with another woman in Georgia. The father departed before he raised the cash for his family to buy a simple grave marker for Michael. When his father left their family, he told people that it was because Linda was cheating on him with a man by the name of Ron Pringle. Ron Pringle is a truck driver and later who Linda ended up marrying. But Linda says it was John who cheated on her with a Georgia waitress he actually committed bigamy with. From Armstrong's early years, he never wanted to be known as John. It was the name of his abusive, unsupportive father. Armstrong stopped using his first name to distance himself from that man. He was known as Eric to family and friends. As a child, he fished, played Nintendo, baseball, and won a small trophy for a school debate. The unassuming kid was a B and c student who talked of becoming a police officer. Assistant Principal Terry Furman of New Bern High School, where Armstrong graduated in 1992 in the class of about 350 kids, said he was relatively unmemorable and not a discipline problem. As a teenager, he had a platonic friend with one girl, but she pressed him for sex. Eric, quote, wasn't ready, his mother said. Instead of hurting the girl's feelings, Armstrong wrote her a letter explaining that he had AIDS, If they slept together, he said, she could die. The girl was so upset that she told her parents, who called Armstrong's mother. During a heated argument with his mother over the phone call, Armstrong grabbed a knife, locked himself in the bathroom, and threatened to kill himself. The standoff ended when paramedics talked him out and whisked him off to a psychiatric ward at the local hospital. He stayed there for a month. Afterwards, he went to a therapist regularly after school. This was the first sign of grief treatment that he received after his brother Michael had passed at such a young age. After high school, he worked for several months at a grocery store, then enlisted in the Navy. Armstrong joined the United States Navy in 1992. His rackmates have described him as, quote, moody. Armstrong worked as a ship's serviceman on the USS Nimitz from 1993 through 1999. On the Nimitz, he took required safety education classes, including one that warned against soliciting prostitutes. This is also where he met Katie Rednoskia, a former swimmer and graduate of Dearborn High School, who in 1998 became Armstrong's wife. Their first child was born February 4, 1999. His last job on the ship was as a barber shop supervisor. He was honorably discharged from the Navy in April 1999. During his eight years in service, Armstrong received the Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. 2 Good Conduct Medals, the Navy Unit Commendation Ribbon, the Meritorious Unit Commendation Ribbon, the National Defense Service Medal, Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, and 2 Sea Service Deployment Ribbons.
1: Armstrong applied to work with the North Carolina State Troopers, but they turned him down in 1999 after a former shipmate he used as a reference mentioned his temper. Then, the Virginia State Troopers rejected him because he was 17 pounds overweight. Armstrong took a job as a guard with initial security and he signed up for law enforcement classes at Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan, with hopes of eventually entering the U.S. Marshals or the nearby Border Patrol. It was only after Armstrong was busted that investigators identified the buckle found at the hotel room of Natasha was a part of the initial security uniform. On November 3rd, while guarding a medical office building in neighboring Novi, Armstrong called the cops at 1.30 a.m. to report that he'd just fought off some robbers. They'd smashed glass doors and slashed his face in the scuffle. It didn't take long for the cops to figure out that the report was a scam. When I pressed him, he broke down crying and admitted it after 15 minutes, remembers Novi detective Victor Lauria. Quote, he had cut himself with a scalpel from one of the offices He showed us where he threw it in the dumpster." He was later charged with falsely reporting a felony, itself a felony count. This false report also cost him his job. 12 days after the false report, Katie came home to find Armstrong blacked out on their canopy bed. He had swallowed a bottle of Comtrex, an over-the-counter allergy medication with half a bottle of Budweiser. Doctors had to pump his stomach. Armstrong may have enjoyed his uniform, but he hated Michigan. He began to cruise the Detroit streets for prostitutes. Michigan Avenue, a quick 10 minutes away, attracted Armstrong's attention. It didn't seem to matter if they were young or old, ugly or beautiful, white or brown, or doing it for $40 worth of crack. Armstrong picked them up. His activities further drained the family's funds. To complicate matters, he now insisted his wife katie dressed up as a prostitute every time they had sex katie says he couldn't have it any other way
0: after the arrest and during the interrogation james hines a detective with the wayne county sheriff's office made a comment about leaving dna on the back of armstrong's hand and said that there was a lot of armstrong's dna on those girls armstrong cracked under pressure He confessed to picking up the victims, having sex with them, and strangling them with his hands or their tights. Armstrong cooperated with the police investigation and answered questions without a lawyer present. Quote, basically, he just told us he either killed or tried to kill every prostitute he'd ever had sex with, Assistant Police Chief Marvin Winkler said. Quote, he expressed remorse several times and was crying like a baby, end quote. At the same time Armstrong was being interrogated for the bodies located in Detroit, detectives from the Dearborn Heights Police Department received the results from the state police crime lab that fibers from Armstrong's vehicle had matched with those found on Wendy Jordan's tights. His blood samples, DNA, also matched sperm taken from Jordan's rectum. Dearborn Heights Police Department learned that Armstrong was in an interrogation room and was admitting to the crimes at that very moment. Over a 14-hour interrogation between cheeseburgers, Cokes, and one restless nap, An ugly truth was revealed. Armstrong, who stands six feet two inches tall and weighs 230 pounds, claims credit for strangling five Detroit prostitutes and confessed he'd attempted to kill four others. He revealed details that only the killer would know, like how he'd given one a split lip, or how another wore leather, or how he'd squeezed the life out of yet another and returned to have sex with her broken body. Armstrong admitted to positioning the three victims on the railroad side so that he could always go back and have sex with them. He knew that they would always be there and they were exactly what he wanted without having to fight them. When asked how long he would return to have sex with the victims, he said, quote, until I couldn't stand the smell of them anymore, end quote. During the confession, Armstrong told Detroit police he not only strangled five Detroit area prostitutes, but that he earlier killed 11 other prostitutes while an active duty sailor abroad the aircraft carrier. The carrier was based in Bremerton, 10 miles west of Seattle across the Puget Sound during several years of his service. He claims to have killed in Seattle, Washington, Hawaii, Hong Kong, China, North Carolina, Virginia, Thailand, and Singapore. Only the five slayings in the Detroit area have been confirmed and police in the other jurisdictions have yet to attach the story to any bodies. Investigators are trying to connect him to unsolved murders in the cities in which the USS Nimitz docked from 1993 until he was discharged in 1999. It was discovered that the Nimitz was in Hawaii only twice during those years, 1993 and 1996. In 1996, the visit was for four days, and the 1993 visit was only one day. Honolulu police have looked into the unsolved murders for both those years, but none match the profile of Armstrong's victims. The only local case with a similar victim profile was that of a stripper who was found dead in her Waikiki apartment in November 1994, police said. Lisa Fracassi, who was 36, was found dead in her Nahua Street apartment with injuries to her neck. She was a dancer at what was the then exotic paradise on Ki Street. But there is no evidence linking Armstrong to Hawaii in 1994, Homicide Lieutenant William Kato said. Academics say... It is not unusual for serial killers to exaggerate their body count to extend their feelings of superiority and domination. Quote, a lot of these guys are very eager to become the Heisman Trophy winner of serial killing, says Jack Levin, the director of the Brednick Center on Violence at Northeastern University in Boston. It's also possible that Armstrong could think that he killed women who, in reality, he actually just left unconscious but not dead. In the Wayne County Jail, Armstrong was being held in the psychiatric observation unit where he was under closer than normal scrutiny due to contemplating suicide.
1: Armstrong was charged with five counts of first-degree murder and four counts of assault with intent to murder in connection with alleged Detroit area crimes. Later, one charge was dismissed after Wilhelmina Drain, who spoke extensively to the media after she said she was attacked, however refused to testify because of the presence of cameras in the courtroom. In a two-week trial in March of 2001, and after two hours of deliberation from the jury, John Eric Armstrong was convicted of first-degree murder for the death of Detroit prostitute Wendy Jordan. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Armstrong showed no emotion and sat still as the verdict was read. His family left the courtroom quickly without commenting. Katie Armstrong, who was pregnant with their second child at the time of the arrest, says her husband couldn't have killed Wendy Jordan because he left their home only briefly that day to buy cold medication. However, he confessed to having sex with Jordan, killed her, and dumped her in a river. On June 18, 2001, the trial for the murder of Kelly Hood resulted in another conviction and life sentence without the possibility of parole. Armstrong pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for the other killings of Robin Brown, Rosemarie Felt, and Monica Johnson, and he received an additional 31 years in prison. Today, Armstrong continues to serve five sentences for first and second-degree murder at the Cotton Correctional Facility near Jackson, Michigan. Armstrong told police his anger stemmed from a high school girlfriend who denied him after another male admirer lavished her with gifts. He said he viewed the gift-giving situation as prostitution. Clinical psychologist Jennifer Belay said that Armstrong told her he saw his birth father's face superimposed on the faces of prostitutes.
0: Investigators say that prostitutes make easy targets for killers and sexual sadists and that they are the most common target. This is because they are women who get into cars and find themselves at the mercy of strange men. For the killer, it is psychologically easier to kill them because he already views them as a worthless sex machine who exists only to give pleasure. What's sad about that is that these women are already struggling, clearly. That's why they're where they're at in life. And then to be disregarded, we know at this time in our history, unfortunately, by law enforcement, and to have men taking advantage of that, knowing that law enforcement is not—they're acting,
1: yeah. They're they're not going to look at it as, as intensely as, say, a murder of somebody else, unfortunately, who's not on the streets,
0: right? So they're not acting on these crimes. So I mean, these women are just all around terrible and then to have somebody with the frame of mind that they're basically disposable
1: it's crazy
0: i mean this isn't the first case and it's not the last that we'll see where a prostitute you know comes across somebody with this mindset but it just baffles me every time because it's so just not the world we live in today yeah every death regardless of who it is is taken seriously and luckily On this particular case, these investigators were determined, especially once they found those bodies positioned in the way that they were, and Mm -hmm. discovered, you know, that necrophilia was taking place, and that, you know, that this serial killer was escalating and not going to stop. They luckily jumped on it and did what they needed to do. But it just gets to a point where it's so sad. I mean, he—if he didn't get caught, I mean, who knows how long he would have (laughs) gone?
1: Seriously, what if that train conductor? never passed it at a certain time. What if it was too dark and he couldn't see it at some point? How many more women would have been there?
0: Mhm. And I mean, granted Wendy Jordan was prior to them and they did end up linking his DNA and like that was a part of it. I mean, that sucked because they had to wait for the crime lab to not only process it but then also for the court to issue an arrest warrant. So they could have potentially had him in custody a lot sooner had that process not taken so long back in the early 2000s, but The worst part of it is that even if he got caught for her, I mean, he may have done a couple years and gotten out and, you know, good behavior, something like that. Seven, eight years, something Mm -hmm. like that. Who knows? He could have been back on the street, right back to where we were. And they may not have ever known about these other victims. Yeah. You know, if he didn't confess to them, he, and they only knew about Wendy Jordan, they could have, I mean, you know, this could have gone on
1: for a while.
0: He could have been I I mean, I don't know about you, but just getting a vibe from this man, I am getting the vibe that he's one of those that goes into prison and it just builds up and builds up and builds up and, builds up and when he, if he were to ever get out, it would just be exp- he would detrimental
1: like, like, like yes, horrible to society. I mean, yeah. yeah.
0: That's that's the vibe that I get from him, I I feel like some maybe not so much, but I feel like for him it is because it's just building up and building mm-hmm. up. I mean that escalated from from when he was multiple in... months to within a few hours of each other. I mean yeah, day like couple days and then to a couple hours. I mean it's it escalated so quickly from August of nineteen ninety nine through April of two thousand. I mean I feel like that's an escalation that in our research we generally see over the course of years. many 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 years. Yeah. Um, And it was so fast for him.
1: Yeah. Not only did he dump the bodies the way that he did and position them, but the thing that gets me is the necrophilia. Yeah. He literally admitted to going back how many times to those bodies. And the only reason why he was done with it is because it got to smell too bad.
0: Yeah. I, first of all, um, hurl. But also, I mean, necrophilia, if you think about it, that's the ultimate form of control.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it is rare. I mean, it's relatively rare. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's unheard of, but it doesn't happen for...
1: As often as... Yeah, in every single
0: case. I mean, Bundy and Dahmer did it, but those are like the most notorious guys Mm -hmm. that I can think of that participated in necrophilia. I actually have a quote here. Um, This is by Park Dietz, who's a professor of clinical psychiatry and behavioral science at the UCLA School of Medicine. He says... Quote, necrophilia is about having a sexual partner who is entirely compliant, makes no demands, never rejects. It allows one to have total control.
1: Disgusting. So,
0: I mean, you're talking about a control freak. This is somebody who knows that he's going to commit a crime against somebody that he sees in his mind as just living trash. Yeah. And Literally on top of that just is going a physical
1: to... body. Yeah, that's it.
0: That he's going to take full advantage of whenever he feels like it, and then dispose of the body, and then continue to take advantage of it. I mean, that is a control freak to the max. I mean, he even mm-hmm. created his own crime scene at his job, <laughs> saying that something happened, like needing that attention, mm-hmm. needing that that sense of control. I'm going to make something happen here. Yeah. I'm going to draw attention to myself. I'm going to. I mean, controlling how him and his wife had sex. I mean, literally, this guy is a control freak. Issues. Yeah.
1: To say the very least. It is insane. But I find it so interesting when we can start to see, you know, how they were raised. What happened in their history. What happened as their kids. And, I mean, him becoming a sexual predator did not go too far off of what happened to him. You know, just like we mentioned about his dad Mm -hmm. sexually assaulting him when he was younger. And,
0: And, I mean, that's something we see in a lot. Mm -hmm. of serial killers you know they had some form of abuse some type of
1: abuse yeah before we close addicts i did want to just remind you that if this case has stirred up any other cases that found interest to you or that you want to know more on please head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com On our website, we do have a form that you can fill out for case recommendations. You can also leave reviews there. Um, We do have our Amazon banner where you can show some support and of course our coffee recipes are on there. So basically everything that you need, you can find on our website. But like I said, we are gonna be going into more individualized cases moving forward. So if you guys have any recommendations, please feel free to leave them at the website.
0: And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the ugly serial killer who could commit wizardry with that long red goatee, John Eric Armstrong. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.
1: For this <laughs>